Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, you guys know by now that I have gone back to seminary, and this week, current events and trends have coincided with my history of Christianity class, and I love that because that's really the goal of my seminary education, that it would impact my daily life in ministry, whether it's ministry at church or through teaching the Bible, podcasting, or writing, that there would be sort of this back and forth between what's happening in my real world and what's happening in my educational world. And honestly, that's the whole point of all things, right, is that we would be looking at all things through a theological lens. So this week I wrote an article about why there are Americans who might want to stay in Afghanistan. Americans who are aid workers and missionaries who've made a hard choice to love God and love Afghans and staying in the country, even at their own peril. Now I wrote the article for a couple reasons. The more superficial or quicker reason that I wrote it is that I've heard a lot of chatter about President Biden and Press Secretary Saki just talking about how they keep referring to Americans who want to leave Afghanistan. And so I've heard conversations and even commentators online saying, why, why do they keep qualifying that population, Americans who want to leave Afghanistan? And I've heard people even feel angry that it's like political posturing. And maybe it is, I don't know. Um, I've been very critical of this withdrawal from the beginning, as you guys know, if you're all things listeners. But there's just this sense of like, who are the people that want to stay in Afghanistan? That population does not exist. And the reality is it absolutely does does exist. There are aid workers, missionaries, people who have been in Afghanistan and other war-torn countries who've given their lives, given decades of service to our Lord and to the people of those particular countries, and they have made the decision to stay. Whether it's Afghanistan or other war-torn countries, that population absolutely does exist. And so the deeper reason that I wrote that particular article is that I think especially as American Christians, we have largely forgotten this population. Even Americans who are Christians themselves, we're not necessarily thinking about and talking about those who are aid workers, those who are missionaries, those who have committed their lives to preaching Christ or teaching in schools or giving medical aid in contexts that are closed, in contexts where the gospel is illegal, in places where they could absolutely be killed and their loved ones and colleagues and friends have been killed or have been injured or have been the victims of significant terrorist attacks, you know, that there is that population that would make that choice. That population is out there. And for some reason, we, especially in the American church, aren't talking about them very much. And so I think Biden and Pisaki, whether they... Um, are, you know, whether they know that that population exists or whether they, um, you know, I'm not sure what they're saying when they say that, but my point in writing the article was to say, Hey church, these people do exist. They have answered the call. They have laid down their lives. They are out there and they are very much worth our attention, our time, our financial support, our prayer support. There are a lot of them. And I think we just forget about them or we cannot fathom that that population exists. Now, my husband and I have had the joy, the absolute privilege of being involved in missions work for over two decades, and we are still serving the missions community in a number of different ways. And so I'm communicating with this population on a daily basis, and I see there this disconnect between how we're talking, even in the church, about the Afghan withdrawal and um, the population of aid workers who might want to stay. 
Even just last night, a friend messaged me. She and her husband are um, seriously contemplating about heading back to the mission field, and they're working on some applications to that end. And she said to me, you know, is it just me? Is it just my limited perception? Or is the church not really speaking to missions anymore? Like, where are the excited potential missionaries? I feel like there um, has just been a depletion of that passion and that population. Is it just me? And I wrote her back and I said, no, it's not just you. We have definitely witnessed the same thing. There has been somewhat of a shift away from enthusiasm for going to the ends of the earth um, to maybe a more insular approach in the church or a more self-focused approach in the church. And um, even this morning, I was messaging with a brother in another part of the world whose family is in a very dangerous location. And he said that you know they receive negative feedback um, at times for being in the location that they're in, that they are bad parents, that they've made a bad choice. And I can say myself, when my husband and I were overseas, we received the same thing and we weren't even in dangerous situations ever. We were in pretty safe places, but even American believers were the hardest on us as they said, you know, what are you doing to your kids by raising them overseas? They're really missing out. They aren't um, benefiting from the education and the sports and the health and the opportunities and resources in this nation. You're not good parents for being there. So what is going on? I just want to speak to this particular disconnect, especially to us who are in the American church. Why this disconnect? It seems to me, and I'm speaking to myself here as well, please hear this entire episode episode as um, just a communication to my own soul and introspection and an inward thinking. Because though we have been in full-time ministry, though we have served overseas, my flesh and um, just my own soul wants to trend towards safety and security all the time. I don't like to get headaches. I pop Advil. I want to be comfortable. I want to be warm when it's cold outside. I want to be cool when it's hot outside. You know, I will be the first to raise my hand and say that what I'm sharing here speaks to my own soul. But I think we hear in the U.S. especially have an idol of safety and security. And we clothe it in so many different things. We clothe it in concern for our children, wanting to provide the best for our kids. You know, God has entrusted these precious children to us. So it's on us to make sure that they are at the best schools and on the best sports teams and getting all the resources that our society makes available to them. You know, we clothe it in just this wisdom of wanting to provide for our families, wanting to be good parents who raise up godly children. I think we clothe our idol of safety and security, um, even in the, in the missions world, sometimes like church missions boards will have discussions about like, what's the best way to do evangelism or what's the best cost benefit analysis. You know, are we going to spend hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands to support missionaries on other side, other side of the world, you know, in these very dangerous locations where plane tickets are very high, where providing for, you know, their clean drinking water or their safe housing is very high. Or are we going to maybe make our missions budget go a lot further by supporting missionaries in a cheaper context that's a lot closer to home. Um, You know, we do it as individuals. Well, it wouldn't be prudent for me to preach Christ in this way. It's a lot more beneficial for me to sort of develop this relationship over the long haul and preach Christ in in this other way. You know, and, and I know I'm speaking in great generalizations, like, each person is called in unique ways. And as I say on my podcast, probably every episode, we are as diverse as our God is creative. And so I know each of our callings are different and the way that we would answer those calls is different. So I know this is a big generality, but I think in general, we in the Western church, we in the American church pursue safety and security over and above Jesus's call to lay our lives down, to go to the ends of the earth, to share his name, to bring light into dark places. You know, we tend to justify our way, again, speaking to myself, we justify our way out of sacrificing. We justify our way out of pain, 
out of discomfort. We rationalize all these reasons why, you know, no, I mean, I know what it says in the Bible, but like, I'm not called like my specific skill set or my specific um, circumstance in, in life, even though the scriptures are clear in some ways about how I should be living. Um, that's really for extra credit Christians. That's for those who are really radical, those who are really off the edge in terms of missions. You know, I, I don't have time right now. I don't have the financial security to step out like that. I want to be giving everything to my kids. You know, God's entrusted me with this situation. I can't go. And I will say as someone who's been in missions and even in the role of recruiting missionaries to the mission field, parents are often the biggest stumbling block when it comes to recruiting new missionaries. You know, there's young adult um, couples or singles that come to us all the time who would love to go, who are willing to lay down their lives. And it's often their parents who don't want them to go. I think that is probably the number one roadblock to missions is parents of adult children who don't want their adult kids to be in harm's way. They want them to live close to home. They want those grandkids to be close to home. They don't want anybody to get hurt. They want their kids to be safe, secure, wealthy, comfortable. So we have all of these idols, you know, I don't think that's too strong of a word, these idols in our specific Western American context that we have brought into the church and we have sort of made them, um, I think, sacred without even realizing it. We've sort of given them our stamp of approval. We have formed ministries where we focus on our family instead of on world missions or the lost or the marginalized. We focus on our family to the extent that we don't want to let in immigrants and refugees, where we don't want to expose our children to the poor and to the suffering or to those who are steeped in sin and in need of rescue. We've clothed the these things that are clearly opposed to scripture and opposed to the heart of God and sort of baptized them in our own church setting and made them sort of holy reasons for avoiding the hard call that Jesus Christ has placed on all of us. And again, I'm guilt, as guilty as the next guy, but I think we're so um, immersed in this particular way of thinking in the wealthy West that we don't even recognize it. We don't even notice when we have given in, when we have um, fully submitted to a way of thinking that prioritizes safety and security and comfort above the suffering of other people. Because here is what Jesus really did say. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's in Matthew 28. That's the great commission. You probably recognize that if you are a student of the word. But the reality is Jesus really did say go. And he really did say, I am with you. I have all authority, authority over every government, over every war, over every conflict, over every spiritual authority. I have all authority and I am with you. So these missionaries who, for example, in Afghanistan have made the hard decision to stay, they just believe Jesus. They believe that he, what he said, that he is with them. You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And friends, that is a scary warning for all of us who seek to save our lives. He says, if we are seeking to save our lives, if we're seeking to protect ourselves and to put ourselves above his calling, above his kingdom, above loving God and loving others, then we are going to lose our lives. We are, um, we're at great risk here. 
the exhortation of scriptures, that God's word exhorts us to love him, to love our neighbors, whether that is literally in our geographical neighborhood or if it's others created in his image who are vulnerable and marginalized on the other side of the planet. The priority in scripture is to consider others better than yourselves. The priority is to lay yourself down for the good of others, to, um, to be made lowly so that others might be saved, that they might hear the gospel, that they might be healed. I'm memorizing First Peter right now, a letter that the apostle Peter wrote. And he says this in first Peter chapter two, he says, for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is our calling friends. Christ suffered for us. He left us an example. He calls us to follow in his steps. So that's currently our friends around the globe, missionaries, aid workers, followers of Christ who've decided to do that, who've willingly chosen suffering so that they might follow in his steps. That population is left out of this conversation um, inside of our churches. And I just want to bring that population back to the forefront because church history really speaks to this. This is where my history of Christianity class really comes in. It was just kind of uncanny this week to be thinking about these aid workers who are willfully laying their lives down and then also studying the birth of the church together. So Peter, who just wrote, penned those words that I read to you about Christ's example of suffering that we might follow in his footsteps. Um, I don't know if you know this about Peter, but he was crucified upside down in Rome under the emperor Nero. Um, he did not, church legend has it, the church tradition says that he would not be crucified right side up as his Lord was, but that he wanted to be crucified upside down. And of course, Paul also was, um, was also a martyr. Now, here's the other disciples I just want to list off for you as a reminder that the very foundation of our faith is martyrdom, is um, men and women who chose to sacrifice it all for Jesus, who so believed and loved and followed their Savior that they were willing to be um, killed during these persecutions in the early years of our faith. So the apostle Andrew was crucified in Achaia. James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod Agrippa I. Philip was crucified in Asia Minor. Matthew was slain by the sword in Ethiopia. Thomas was run through with a lance in India. Bartholomew was flayed to death in Armenia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and clubbed in Syria. Thaddeus was killed by arrows in Edessa. Simon the Zealot attacked by a mob in Persia. And Matthias burned in Syria. Now, if you were keeping count, John, of course, died a natural death in Ephesus, and Judas Iscariot hanged himself. But 10 out of the 12 apostles martyred for their faith. Now, persecutions of the early church lasted for about 250 years. There were 10 waves of persecution, some of them more localized, some of them empire-wide, under 10 different emperors. And so we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Christians who were imprisoned, whose property and homes were taken away, who were tortured, beaten. Um, death was often the result. Sometimes Christians were burned to death. Sometimes they were handed over to beasts in the arena for the um, entertainment of the masses. But we're talking about Christians who 
um, were martyred for their faith because they were seen as a threat to the empire. You know, these Roman emperors would look at them and go, like, for example, the emperor Julian, he said, see, they even care for our poor and our sick, not just their own. And he was so frustrated that these early Christians would minister to even the pagans. And so the Christians were perceived as a threat for the way that they showed care. They um, brought in widows and orphans. They ministered to others during deadly plagues. They brought in the lowly. They rescued abandoned babies. And so the early Christians' faith was very obvious. It was very public. It was very countercultural. And it was very costly. And my reminder to you and to me is this is our faith. This is what it looks like to live out our faith. Now, you and I might not live in a situation that's comparable to the Roman Empire, but maybe some of you do. Some of you who listen from overseas, maybe you absolutely do live in a place where your faith is illegal. But to you and me who live in a place where our faith is very much legal, do we live in such a way that is very obvious? Is it very countercultural? Are we ministering to the poor and the marginalized, to those who have not heard of Christ, to those who need care, to those who have nothing to offer? Does our ministry to them stand out in such a way that people are taking notice and going, see how they care for everybody else? What is going on? Who are these people? And um, and that's really what I wanted to do with that article about those who have stayed in Afghanistan and those who are staying currently in other war-torn countries all over the world. Our, our friends who are working in South America and various countries in Africa, throughout Southeast Asia, I mean, putting everything on the line, um, They are they their life admonishes ours, doesn't it? Like it's a reminder to you and to me about what are we living for now. So here's just some tangible, practical encouragements for you and for me to remember what's true. First of all, we've got to be discipled by the word of God. We've got to know what the Bible says and not be discipled by our culture. Because the reality is that I think even our Christian culture often falls short. The world is so pervasive. You know, we live in it 24-7, right? And we are being discipled by news and social media and by the wealth and um, the, the, just the thing, the American dream that we live in. We are being discipled by that. So you and I have no hope if we do not choose to pursue God's word on a daily basis so that our minds can be renewed by him. I think another thing as believers that we often forget here, especially in the wealthy and healthy West, is that life is short and this life is not what our life is all about. Do you think about eternity? Do you think about heaven? Do you think about, and I love Randy Alcorn for this, do you realize that this is the pre-life to the real life that comes next? You and I were not made for this world. We were made for eternity on the new heavens and the new earth, uh, reigning with Jesus, worshiping him with um, saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This, friends, is the very short, brief life before the real eternal life that comes ahead. Do you think about that? Do you think about suffering in light of that? Do you think about pursuing your neighbors with the gospel, bringing in children with no home, ministering to the refugee and the immigrant, going toward the homeless? Do you think about how sacrificing what you have now so that there might be more in heaven, more people, more saints, more followers of Jesus in heaven? Do you think about how that's a really good cost-benefit analysis? It is worth it for you and I to lay down this temporal life for eternal life, for um, a more diverse, more beautiful, more full heaven? Do you think about eternity on a daily basis? Another exhortation for you and me is to know history. Like, thank God I'm in this history of Christianity class. I mean, I of course, I knew about the persecutions and the martyrs and the apostles all dying for their faith, but to be steeped in this, um, in my textbooks and in the stories of the faith that are coming from the first, second, third, fourth centuries um, really 
girds up my own faith. It reminds me of what matters. It reminds me of the brevity of life and how those apostles and those martyrs made good choices when they exchanged their brief earthly life for a long and glorious eternal one. And of course, I think reading missionary biographies is another really great practical tool in reminding yourself that it's worth it. Um, I always find I always feel just so bolstered by missionary biographies. And so, my um, exhortation to you and to me is: let's be considering how the Lord might be asking us to lay our lives down. Now, not all of us are called overseas. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you know every good Christian goes um, into the jaws of death overseas. But some of you are called to that, and you might not be called to death but some of you are called to that. But how can you and I pursue others outside of our own comfort zone right now? How can we move toward the lost and the hurting? How can we bring light into a dark place right here? Whether it's in your own cul-de-sac, your own city, your own country, your own continent, or maybe, maybe it is overseas, but do you pursue your own safety and security over the suffering of other people? And lastly, just in light of that article that I wrote about the Americans who are staying in Afghanistan and in light of the many brothers and sisters that you and I have who are all over the globe in places that are scary and not safe, and um, frankly, who receive a lot of negative pushback from other siblings in the faith, I want to encourage you to encourage the missionaries that you know, to let them know that you're cheering for them, that you're praying for them, that you are proud of them, that you are so glad God has equipped them for this calling Pray about maybe joining them. Maybe you have a role with them on the field. Um, Ask the Lord how you can be laying down the idols of safety and security in your own life. My husband and I talk about this on a daily basis, and we really have, especially over the last couple days. um, Where are we willing to bow to safety and security rather than to submit ourselves to um, nourishing those who are suffering? Friends, let's not give ourselves over to the cheap fakes of safety and security. How sad that we would live to be safe and comfortable above living for the glory and the renown of our risen King. Let's you and I choose what's better. Let's you and I live um, today and tomorrow for what really matters. Let's live for what will be lasting and eternal. And that is the name of Jesus and that others may know him and um, have joy in this life and the next because they heard about their creation and Savior. Well, thank you, friends, for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.